Chapter 18, Part 2 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Chapter 18, Part 2 Antiquity of the Delta. The vast size of the alluvial plain, both above and below the head of the delta, or the branching off of the uppermost arm of the Achatfalaya, has been already alluded to. Its superficial dimensions, according to Mr. Forshey, exceed 30,000 square miles, nearly half of which belong to the true delta. The deposits consist partly of sand originally formed upon or near the banks of the river and its tributaries, partly of gravel swept down from the main channel, of which the position has continually shifted, and partly of fine mud slowly accumulated in the swamps. The further we descend the river towards its mouth, the finer becomes the texture of the sediment. The whole alluvial formation, from the base of the delta upwards, slopes with a very gentle inclination, rising about three inches in a mile, from the level of the sea at the Balize to the height of about two hundred feet in a distance of about eight hundred miles. That a large portion of this fluviatile deposit, together with the fluvial marine strata now in progress near the Balize, consists of mud and sand with much vegetable matter intermixed, may be inferred from what has been said of the abundance of drift trees flouted down every summer. These are seen matted together into a network around the extensive mud-banks at the extreme mouth of the river. Everyone acquainted with the geography of Louisiana is aware that the most southern part of the delta forms a long, narrow tongue of land, protruding for fifty miles into the Gulf of Mexico, at the end of which are numerous channels of discharge. This singular promontory consists simply of the river and its two low, flat banks, covered with reeds, young willows, and poplars. Its appearance answers precisely to that of the banks far in the interior, when nothing appears above water during inundations, but the higher part of the sloping glaciers or bank. In the one case, we have the swamps or an expanse of fresh water, with the tops of trees appearing above, in the other, the bluish-green surface of the Gulf of Mexico. An opinion has very commonly prevailed that this narrow promontory, the newest product of the river, has gained very rapidly upon the sea since the foundation of New Orleans. But after visiting the Balize in 1846, in company with Dr. Carpenter, and making many inquiries of the pilots, and comparing the present outline of the coast, with the excellent Spanish chart, published by Charlevoix 120 years before, we came to a different conclusion. The rate of permanent advance of the new land has been very slow, not exceeding perhaps one mile in a century. The gain may have been somewhat more rapid in former years, when the new strip of soil projected less far into the gulf since it is now much more exposed to the action of a strong marine current. The tides also, when the waters of the river are low, enter into each opening and scour them out, 
destroying the banks of mud and the sandbars newly formed during the flood season. An observation of Darby in regard to the strata composing part of this delta deserves attention. In the steep banks of the Achafalaya before alluded to, the following section, he says, is observable at low water. First, an upper stratum, consisting invariably of bluish clay, common to the banks of the Mississippi. Below this, a stratum of red ochreous earth, peculiar to Red River, under which the blue clay of the Mississippi again appears, and this arrangement is constant, proving, as the geographer remarks, that the waters of the Mississippi and the Red River occupied alternately, at some former periods, considerable tracts below their present point of union. Such alternations are probably common in submarine spaces, situated between two converging deltas. For, before the two rivers unite, there must almost always be a certain period, when an intermediate tract will by turns be occupied and abandoned by the waters of each stream, since it can rarely happen that the season of highest flood will precisely correspond in each. In the case of the Red River and Mississippi, which carry off the waters from countries placed under widely distant latitudes, an exact coincidence in the time of greatest inundation is very improbable. The antiquity of the delta, or length of the period, which has been occupied in the deposition of so vast a mass of alluvial matter, is a question which may well excite the curiosity of every geologist. Sufficient data have not yet been obtained to afford a full and satisfactory answer to the inquiry, but some approximation may already be made to the minimum of time required. When I visited New Orleans in February 1846, I found that Dr. Riddell had made numerous experiments to ascertain the proportion of sediment contained in the waters of the Mississippi, and he concluded that the mean annual amount of solid matter was to the water as 1 to 1,245 in weight, or about 1 to 3,000 in volume. From the observations of the same gentleman and those of Dr. Carpenter and Mr. Forshey, an eminent engineer, to whom I have before alluded, the average width, depth, and velocity of the Mississippi, and thence the mean annual discharge of water were deduced. I assumed 528 feet, or the tenth of a mile, as the probable thickness of the deposit of mud and sand in the delta, founding my conjecture chiefly on the depth of the Gulf of Mexico, between the southern point of Florida and the Belize, which equals on an average 100 fathoms, and partly on some borings 600 feet deep in the delta, near Lake Pontchartain, north of New Orleans, in which the bottom of the alluvial matter is said not to have been reached. The area of the delta being about 13,600 square statute miles, and the quantity of solid matter annually brought down by the river, 3,700,000,758,400 cubic feet, it must have taken 67,000 years for the formation of the whole, and if the alluvial matter of the plain above be 264 feet deep, 
or half that of the delta it must have required thirty three thousand and five hundred more years for its accumulation even if its area be estimated as only equal to that of the delta whereas it is in fact larger if some deduction be made from the time here stated in consequence of the effect of the driftwood which must have aided in filling up more rapidly the space above alluded to a far more important allowance must be made on the other hand for the loss of matter owing to the finer particles of mud not settling at the mouth of the river but being swept out far to sea during the predominant action of the tides and the waves in the winter months when the current of fresh water is feeble yet however vast the time during which the mississippi has been transporting its earthy burden to the ocean the whole period though far exceeding perhaps one hundred thousand years must be insignificant in a geological point of view since the bluffs or cliffs bounding the great valley and therefore older in date and which are from fifty to two hundred and fifty feet in perpendicular height consist in great part of loam containing land fluviatile and lacustrine shells of species still inhabiting the same country before we take leave of the great delta we may derive an instructive lesson from the reflection that the new deposits already formed or now accumulating whether marine or fresh water must greatly resemble in composition and the general character of their organic remains many ancient strata which enter largely into the earth's structure yet there is no sudden revolution in progress whether on the land or in the waters whether in the animate or in the inanimate world notwithstanding the excessive destruction of soil and uprooting of trees the region which yields a never-failing supply of driftwood is densely closed with noble forests and is almost unrivalled in its power of supporting animal and vegetable life in spite of the undermining of many a lofty bluff and the encroachments of the delta on the sea in spite of the earthquake which rends and fissures the soil or causes areas more than sixty miles in length to sink down several yards in a few months the general features of the district remain unaltered or are merely undergoing a slow and insensible change herds of wild deer graze on the pastures or browse upon the trees and if they diminish in number it is only where they give way to man and the domestic animals which hollow in his train the bear the wolf the fox the panther and the wild cat still maintain themselves in the fastnesses of the forests of cypress and gum tree the raccoon and the opossum are everywhere abundant while the muskrat otter and mink still frequent the rivers and lakes and the few beavers and buffaloes have not yet been driven from their ancient haunts the waters teem with alligators tortoises and fish and their surface is covered with millions of migratory waterfowl which perform their annual voyage between the canadian lakes and the shores of the mexican gulf the power of man begins to be sensibly felt and many parts of the wilderness to be replaced by towns orchards and gardens the gilded steamboats like moving palaces stem the force of the current or shoot rapidly down the descending stream 
through the solitudes of the forests and prairies. Already does the flourishing population of the Great Valley far exceed that of the thirteen United States when first they declared their independence. Such is the state of a continent where trees and stones are harried annually by a thousand torrents from the mountains to the plains, and where sand and finer matter are swept down by a vast current to the sea, together with the wreck of countless forests and the bones of animals which perish in the inundations. When these materials reach the gulf, they do not render the waters unfit for aquatic animals, but on the contrary, the ocean here swarms with life, as it generally does, where the influx of a great river furnishes a copious supply of organic and mineral matter. Yet many geologists, when they behold the spoils of the land heaped in successive strata and blended confusedly with the remains of fishes, or interspersed with broken shells and corals, when they see portions of erect trunks of trees with their roots still retaining their natural position, and one tier of these preserved in a fossil state above another, imagine that they are viewing the signs of a turbulent instead of a tranquil and settled state of the planet. They read in such phenomena the proof of chaotic disorder and reiterated catastrophes, instead of indications of a surface as habitable as the most delicious and fertile districts now tenanted by man. As an example of still larger delta, advancing upon the sea in opposition to more powerful tides, I shall next describe that of the Ganges and Brahmaputra, or Buramputa. These, the two principal rivers of India, descend from the highest mountains in the world, and partially mingle their waters in the low plains of Hindustan, before reaching the head of the Bay of Bengal. The Brahmaputra, somewhat the larger of the two, formerly passed to the east of Dhaka, even so lately as the beginning of the present century, pouring most of its waters into one of the numerous channels in the delta called the Meghna. By that name the main stream was always spoken of by Ranel and others in their memoirs of this region. But the main trunk now unites with an arm of the Ganges, considerably higher up, at a point about one hundred miles distant from the sea, and it is constantly, according to Dr. Hooker, working its way westward, having formerly, as may be seen by ancient maps, moved eastward for a long period. The area of the delta of the combined rivers, for it is impossible now to distinguish what belongs to each, is considerably more than double that of the Nile, even if we exclude from the delta a large extent of low, flat alluvial plain, doubtless of fluviatile origin, which stretches more than one hundred miles to the hills west of Calcutta, see map at figure twenty-five, and much farther in the northerly direction, beyond the head of the great delta. The head of the delta is that point where the first arm is given off. Above that point a river receives the waters of tributaries flowing from higher levels, Below it, on the contrary, it gives out portions of its waters to lower levels, through channels which flow into adjoining swamps, or which run directly to the sea. The Mississippi, as before described, has a single head, 
which originated at an unknown period when the Red River joined it. In the great delta of Bengal, there may be said to be two heads nearly equidistant from the sea, that of the Ganges, G, map figure 25, about 30 miles below Rajmahal, or 216 statute miles in a direct line from the sea, and that of the Brahmaputra, B, below Chirapunji, where the river issues from the Cassia Mountains, a distance of 224 miles from the Bay of Bengal. It will appear, by reference to the map, that the great body of fresh water derived from the two rivers enters the bay on its eastern side, and that a large part of the delta bordering on the sea is composed of a labyrinth of rivers and creeks, all filled with salt water except those immediately communicating with the Hogli, or principal arm of the Ganges. This tract alone, known by the name of the woods, or Sunderbunds, more properly Sunderbunds, a wilderness infested by tigers and crocodiles, is, according to Renel, equal in extent to the whole principality of Wales. On the sea-coast there are eight great openings, each of which has evidently, at some ancient period, served in its turn as the principal channel of discharge. Although the flux and reflux of the tide extend even to the heads of the delta, when the rivers are low, yet when they are periodically swollen by tropical rains, their volume and velocity counteract the tidal current, so that, except very near the sea, the ebb and flow become insensible. During the flood season, therefore, the Ganges and Brahmaputra almost assume in their delta the character of rivers entering an inland sea, the movements of the ocean being then subordinate to the force of the rivers, and only slightly disturbing their operations. The great gain of the delta in height and area takes place during the inundations, and during other seasons of the year, the ocean makes reprisals, scoring out the channels, and sometimes devouring rich alluvial plains. Islands Formed and Destroyed Major R. H. Culebrook, in his account of the course of the Ganges, relates examples of the rapid filling up of some of its branches, and the excavation of new channels, where the number of square miles of soil removed in a short time, the column of the earth being 114 feet high, was truly astonishing. Forty square miles, or 25,600 acres, are mentioned as having been carried away in one place in the course of a few years. The immense transportation of earthy matter by the Ganges and Brahmaputra is proved by the great magnitude of the islands formed in their channels during a period far short of that of a man's life. Some of these, many miles in extent, have originated in large sandbanks thrown up round the points at the angular turning of the rivers, and afterwards insulated by breaches of the streams. Others, formed in the main channel, are caused by some obstruction at the bottom. A large tree or a sunken boat is sometimes sufficient to check the current and cause a deposit of sand, which accumulates till it usurps a considerable portion of the channel. The river then undermines its banks on each side, to supply the deficiency of its bed, 
and the island is afterwards raised by fresh deposits during every flood. In the great gulf below Lakipur, formed by the united waters of the Ganges and Meghna, some of the islands, says Renel, rival in size and fertility the Isle of Wight. While the river is forming new islands in one part, it is sweeping away old ones in others. Those newly formed are soon overrun with reeds, long grass, the tamarix indica, and other shrubs, forming impenetrable thickets, where the tiger, the rhinoceros, the buffalo, deer, and other wild animals take shelter. It is easy, therefore, to perceive that both animal and vegetable remains may occasionally be precipitated into the flood and become embedded in the sediment which subsides in the delta. Three or four species of crocodile, of two distinct subgenera, abound in the Ganges, and its tributary and contiguous waters, and Mr. H. T. Culebrook informed me that he had seen both forms in places far inland, many hundred miles from the sea. The Gangetic crocodile, or gavial, in correct orthography, gariel, is confined to the freshwater, living exclusively on fish, but the commoner kinds, called kumiach and mugar, frequent both fresh and salt, being much larger and fiercer in salt and brackish water. These animals swarm in the brackish water along the line of sandbanks, where the advance of the delta is most rapid. Hundreds of them are seen together in the creeks of the delta, or basking in the sun on the shoals without. They will attack men and cattle, destroying the natives when bathing, and tame and wild animals which come to drink. I have not unfrequently, says Mr. Colibrook, been witness to the horrid spectacle of a floating corpse seized by a crocodile with such avidity that he half emerged above the water with his prey in his mouth. The geologist will not fail to observe how peculiarly the habits and distribution of these saurians expose them to become embedded in the horizontal strata of fine mud which are annually deposited over many hundred square miles in the Bay of Bengal. The inhabitants of the land, which happen to be drowned or thrown into the water, are usually devoured by these voracious reptiles, but we may suppose the remains of the Zorians themselves to be continually entombed in the new formations. The number also of bodies of the poorer class of Hindus thrown annually into the Ganges is so great that some of their bones or skeletons can hardly fail to be occasionally enveloped in a fluviatile mud. It sometimes happens, at the season when the periodical flood is at its height, that a strong gale of wind, conspiring with a high spring-tide, checks the descending current of the river, and gives rise to most destructive inundations. From this cause, in 1763, the waters at Lakipur, rose six feet above their ordinary level, and the inhabitants of a considerable district, with their houses and cattle, were totally swept away. The population of all oceanic deltas are particularly exposed to suffer by such catastrophes, recurring at considerable intervals of time, and we may safely assume that such tragical events have happened again and again since the Gangetic Delta was inhabited by man. If human experience and forethought 
cannot always guard against these calamities, still less can the inferior animals avoid them, and the monuments of such disastrous inundations must be looked for in great abundance in strata of all ages, if the surface of our planet has always been governed by the same laws. When we reflect on the general order of tranquillity that reigns in the rich and populous delta of Bengal, notwithstanding the havoc occasionally committed by the depredations of the ocean, we perceive how unnecessary it is to attribute the embedding of successive races of animals in older strata to extraordinary energy in the causes of decay and reproduction in the infancy of our planet, or to those general catastrophes and sudden revolutions so often resorted to. End of chapter 18, part 2